Hey there, this is the It's All Good Block Club Chicago podcast, and this is episode 62. What happens after buildings are torn down in Chicago? We're going to chat with a sociology professor about his after-demolition photo project in just a moment, but let's start with some good news from the Good News Hotline. Hi, Chicago. My name is DJ Corchin. I'm the host of a really fun web show we do every Thursday night called Call It a Draw. It's like whose line is it anyways, but with drawing. Fun banter and incredibly talented artists. These artists have worked for Marvel, Disney, DC, all the big ones. We're taping a live pilot this Saturday, November 5th, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Raven Room at Redline VR in Ravenswood. And we'd love for you to join us and be part of the audience. Get your tickets now at www.callitadraw.com. It's C-A-L-L-I-T-T-A draw.com. You get to offer prompts and drawing ideas as we play a series of improvised drawing games for your entertainment. Super fun, stinking hilarious, and a great unique experience for a night out. Join us this Saturday. See you then. Bye. You can call the hotline yourself at 312-772-5756 with any fun stuff you have going on. And we're still looking for nonprofit shout-outs so we can share their mission with our audience in an upcoming episode. So call 312-772-5756 and leave us a message. All right, let's get on to episode 62. David Shaliol is a sociology professor at St. Olaf College in Minnesota. He spent time in Chicago 10 years ago and launched a photo project then named After Demolition. Moss Context published it. Mac Lederman wrote the story for Block Club Chicago. And it's a really stunning story. I suggest you go to MASContext.com to follow along and look at the pictures as you listen to this podcast. But After Demolition shows what became of 100 Chicago buildings 10 years after they were torn down. I am spoiling the end, but maybe it's not much of a spoiler to those who know how Chicago has been for a long time. Redevelopment was swift in predominantly white neighborhoods of these torn down buildings, while it was almost non-existent in others. David Shaliel joins us right now. Professor, thanks for joining us on the It's All Good podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. What drove you to want to do this project? And obviously, when you're following something for 10 years, you know it's not going to pay off immediately, right? Right, right. So <laughs> why dive into this? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the projects I work on have that long, uh, long stretch to them. And, you know, my interest is not only understanding, like, what's happening at this very moment, but in order to understand what's going on at this moment, we under- need to understand what happened in the past and what's happening, you know, kind of in the future. And so these kinds of longitudinal projects where I'm able to spend time, uh, you know, over, you know, a a great deal of time uh, in the same place really helps focus, um, you know, like my, not only my attention, but sort of like my ability for us to sort of like understand what's going on. And so, yeah, I was a a graduate student uh, at the University of Chicago and I was working on projects that were interested in the way that basically people interact with place. And in particular, I was interested in inequities that are manifesting in the built environment or sort of in the, you know, the, the sort of like in the buildings, the infrastructure, the sort of all the stuff that like people create around us in Chicago. And one of the things that was so clear, particularly in the sort of post-recession moment, so if you can go back and think about into 2011 and 2012, the city is still reeling from the Great Recession, from the foreclosure crisis. And we're seeing a, a, this sort of a huge number of demolitions happening in the city. And the number of demolitions that are happening 
really seemed to be different depending on where you were. And so I wanted to dive in and try to understand the way that you know, class, race, uh, and place are all interconnected in this like city that's so important to us. I imagine as you sought out to start this and did, you didn't have any idea, of course, as none of us did, that then we'd have a world pandemic thrown into this and you have other crises that are manifesting themselves. I guess that's what is fascinating, disturbing, sad, exhilarating about being a sociology professor and looking at things in the long term is that when you start, you really don't know what journey you're about to go on. No, it's true. Uh, I mean, you really don't. And I think, you know, with this kind of project, there was a sense, right, going out into the city and having an understanding of what was going on in different neighborhoods of what I might expect to find in the long run. Um, but yeah, of course, you don't know what's going to intervene. You know, what had happened if Chicago had gotten the Olympic Games? What had happened if there weren't a pandemic? What had happened if the city had a dramatic shift in housing policy and tried to protect, uh, you know, neighborhoods all over the city? You know, all of these big things could have made a, a real change uh, in what the outcome of the project was. And how did you pick locations? Did you just make sure that you were representing different neighborhoods, socioeconomic backgrounds, and just kind of spread out? Yeah, so uh, it worked a, a couple of different ways. And so the main thing, I mean, about the project was I would literally like wake up in the morning and take a look at the city database uh, that looked at uh, building permits. And so I would look to see where are there demolition permits in the city. And so, you know, a lot of days I'd have time to be able to go out and, uh, and photograph. And so on those days, you know, I would look and see what was out there figure out where I could get get to in time uh, and then head there and in the process ended up with a pretty broad range of what was going on in the city there were some parts of the city where I I really made an effort to make sure that I could get out and you know maybe a photo make a couple photographs in the far northwestern part of the city um, you know for example where it was just sort of like oh I see this one coming up and I've, I've just got to get out there. Um, and so it's not a true random sample, but I think the um, what came out of it was an almost random approach to how I was able to get to a building and in the process, I think does a pretty good job of representing what was going on in the city in the year 2012. As you returned, just from an emotional perspective as someone who had observed these places before demolition, going and seeing what came from them. I don't know. I get emotional about cities and like seeing what changes around, not only that ex individual lot, but maybe the ones around it. What was that experience like viewing a place 10 years afterwards? Yeah, I mean, it really depended on, on you know, what had happened. Um, and, you know, to a certain extent, uh, did I have a connection to the place? And so there were there are a few places in this city where I, you know, I, ha I have friends, I have, you know, colleagues, or there are places where I spent time studying. And so in those places, of course, you have this kind of additional personal reaction to what's going on. Um, and, you know, whether that be of, uh, you know, excitement, uh, or, you know, really a, a heartbreak. And so it really, you know, it really varied based on whether I had an experience the place or or just yeah, just what had happened in those intervening years. And so sometimes I'd walk up to where the site was and um, it would be sort of as I expected, but in a way that continued to make my you know, heart sink. And, you know, at, uh, other times, you know, of course, the feeling was, uh, it was, was really different. I think the big thing for me about this is the emotional reaction came from not, not just like each visit right each building visit but instead the accumulation of all of the visits and it was that through that accumulation that it really uh had a, a deep effect on uh, on me uh, in addition to any particular connection i might have had to a place i have a question that i hope doesn't come off as rude professor 
What did we learn here? Yeah, sure. And so maybe it's helpful to just, uh, you know, walk through a little bit of the findings here. But yeah, so, you know, looking at these hundred buildings that of of the buildings that are on the, nor the north side of the city, about 90% of those buildings were replaced by another building within 10 years. Uh, on the south and the west sides of the city, uh, about 90% of those buildings do not have a structure on them now. And um, and so, you know, this it's, it's a remarkable, uh, you know, statistic. And Wait, wait, wait. So 90% on the north side replaced new building yes. 90% on the south and west sides it's vacant there's nothing there yeah exactly exactly and to make the make matters you know sort of even more uh uh i don't know uh, i don't know what the right word shocking is. But, appalling uh, yeah, yes. shocking is that among the, the the places on the north side where there aren't buildings that most of them are places where someone knocked down a building in order to have a side yard right so this is an intentional construction of a private recreational space on the north side um whereas on the south and the west sides you know the, the few cases where there are, there was new construction and were mostly from institutions and so whether it be the city in conjunction with private developers you know or other groups uh, that are actively working to, to change what's happening. I'm not saying they're all social service organizations, right? But these are institutions. And so what we're, what we're not seeing so much of on the south and north sides is the replacement of these buildings with more homes, right? So, uh, so um, I, I just want to make sure I understand. So that you're saying that 90% yeah. of the buildings on the north side have been replaced with buildings and the vast majority of the 10% that aren't were intentional opportunities yeah. to expand the property of wealthy, mostly wealthy, I assume, north side residents. Exactly. Right. Uh, so, you know, so this is where we see, you know, so when you when you look at that, then in almost every case on the north side of the city and, you know, both parts of the loop, right, to what we see then is reconstruction. So it's demolition, often almost entirely demolition service of reconstruction or in some desired sort of a intentional outcome. Whereas on the south or the west sides of the city, what we're seeing is, you know, the, the effect of this intentional decision to demolish the building, right, but without a follow through. There's not a sense of what's coming next. And instead, what we see is that intentional demolition. But then what, you know, what remains is just what remains. I will say that I think some people say a demolished building greater than abandoned building for potential sure. future growth. When you walk in these areas and you see empty lots, are there some where you say, okay, maybe this is part of a neighborhood cleanup effort that then could lead right. to something else? I'm, I'm guess this is the It's All Good sure, podcast. Sure. I'm looking for glimmers of hope. Sure. So, you know, um, I mean, maybe in some cases, right? Um, certainly there are developers who uh, find it easier to work on wholesale new construction than a site that, you know, where they need to work on a redevelopment. And so in that sense, if development were to come, but of course what we've seen is in the 10 years, there has been no development, right? But so if developers were in fact focused on, you know, portions of the city that have been disproportionately disadvantaged, then, you know, then yes, maybe we might see that, right? But instead, I think that, I mean, my big takeaway from this is what's happening is, is that there are, you know, buildings that were fine, that were occupied, that were inhabited, and through one reason or another, you know, uh, often it might be through something like, you know, neglect of the landlord. It could be that a, uh, you know, a bank foreclosed the property, evicted the tenants or, you know, the former residents. And in the process, 
basically no one was there to, to see what was going on in the building, that this kind of thing is what's happening. And so what, what I see is that it would be better to spend money <laughs> trying to figure out how to shore up buildings to keep those buildings there uh, than it would be to, you know, to say like, oh, okay, well, so it's gonna be a little bit easier for a developer to come in and build something new, right? These are mm -hmm. great buildings. People have been lived in them for more than a century. Let's find a way to keep them there, uh, keep them as housing. It wasn't only homes, right? I mean, I see a picture oh, sure. on of a what looks like, you know, I'm sure that it's been through a lot, but a what looks like a gorgeous church gone. Yeah. One of the things that's really clear is that and this is, and again, I'm not the only one who's saying this, but one of the things that's clear is that, you know, that there's a real question about what's going to happen with buildings that are, you know, religious buildings. Uh, and so we see, you know, one example in the series um, is a place that has a major preservation victory. It wasn't demolished. It's one of the only, I think, maybe two buildings in the series that, that weren't ultimately demolished. So, you know, this this building is, is protected. It's a church that's going to be turned into uh, condominiums along with the new building building built next to it. Um, there's another uh, another building that was a church that was on the north side uh, that was demolished for our Walgreens. Uh, and then we have this this you know, beautiful building in, in the sort of uh, in, in North uh, Lawndale that was uh, originally built as a synagogue, became a, a church. Uh, it was a church, in fact, where Dr. Martin Luther King spoke. And the last church who had it ultimately wasn't able to maintain it. And so, you know, when I think about these kinds of situations that we need to be thinking on a, you know, a, a broad scale of the city and thinking, well, so what can we do to protect these other, you know, these kinds of religious structures? What kinds of programs can we make available to ensure that small congregations are able to continue to protect those buildings? Because when we lose them, it's not just losing, you know, one church's, you know, place of worship, or instead what we're seeing when we lose these kinds of institutions is that we're seeing uh, the loss of a gathering place. We're seeing the loss of, a, you know, a place where people in the community can come together to address whatever it is that they care about and to celebrate together. And so when we lose those buildings and we're not seeing anything else rise in its place, you know, my thought is how can we find a way to, to protect them? What, you know, what attracts a lot of people to this project is the very tangible nature of being able to see a before and after photo. Mm. And I think that resonates with people because we all, no matter where we live, city or suburbs, we have buildings that we walk by and go, oh, I love that place. And I think it, it in a very microway it demonstrates what's happening on a mic on a macro sense yes and allows us to kind of consume it i don't know if that's what you sought out to do but it, it definitely makes it more digestible yeah i mean part of the idea with this project from the very beginning was to photograph the buildings i think in, in, in you know while collecting all this other information and so for me collecting you know collecting that information and really having this photo that presents you know presents what is there gives people a way to, to, you know, connect with those memories they have of maybe not this place, but another place that's like them. They, you know, like it. They can think that it's like, you know, it's like a, an apartment where I lived. It's like, yeah, it's like the building I passed when I walked down the street. And you really, you know, get a sense of like the texture and experience of it, right? This is why to me, it's a photographic project and instead of simply the, the data, right? But then to have that follow-up where you can then see, well, so what's next? What happened to it? Um, I, I think it gives that... Uh, 
it doesn't have that full emotional reaction of being there in that place. But particularly in the cases where you see, I think, you know, where there was a building and there isn't one now, and you see it's clear that, you know, the, the city isn't maintaining the lots. And, you know, that when, when you see that, I think there's an extra weight behind that. And so I'm so grateful that Moss Context, when they wanted to publish the piece, that they thought, you know, okay, so let's do this in a way where we can actually share a huge number of these photographs and we can show the photographs side by side so that people have the opportunity to experience some some very small way um, what it's like when that building goes away and and what happens instead. When I'm a big history buff, I love analyzing photos and I, I like looking back, you know, last century and seeing the difference between 1910, 1920, right? 2030. But I do feel like from a historical perspective, this is important as an archived thing that people demonstrate it. But I wonder, do you have a desire to do this again in 10 years? Absolutely. I mean, I really think that, you know, my, my commitment is to the, the issues that drive uh, what's happening here, right? So I'm interested in the built environment. But really what I'm interested in is, you know, the structural and inequity. I'm interested in the public policy that produces these outcomes. I'm interested in the way that, you know, banks and landlords and property owners and developers all work together to sort of produce and reproduce the kinds of privilege that we see here and the disadvantage that we see here and try to find ways to, uh, you know, comprehend that and then find a way to figure out how to address those issues. And so to me, you know, I want to see what happens at 10 years in the future and so on. And so absolutely, I think of this project as something that from the beginning was a longitudinal, longitudinal project that could connect with that history and connect with the future. And of course, my hope is, is that looking, you know, looking back that, uh, all of these places are, you know, places that people are engaging in meaningful ways. Maybe it's people's homes, maybe it's stores, maybe it's places of worship, maybe it's a new playground. The one last thing I think that I, I think is important to say is that there are uh, activists, artists, uh, politicians, all sorts of people who are really engaged in these issues. And so I want to, you know, especially, you know, speak out and sort of say that, I, you know, I think about the work of uh, artists like Amanda Williams uh, and Tanika Johnson are both really just these amazing artists who are doing work uh, in particular that draws attention to these issues, uh, that draws attention to the history of the issues, the cultural context of the issues, um, and particularly how they play out in, in, in Southside uh, Black communities in the city. As I think about this, I think it's important to recognize that while there are so, so many of these places in the South and West sides have been, you know, so divested uh, and we have these active policies that are removing buildings um, that there's this, uh, you know, idea to think that there's a place of, uh, of emptiness, right? Um, and it's really not, right? And there are people who are finding ways to um, really transform some of these, some of these sites. And that, that brings up such a great point. And I think this sometimes get lost. If you see a bunch of empty lots, on the south and west sides, it can sometimes give the impression that the people who live there don't care. And right. that is not the case. These are communities that care. There are a lot of people that are that that really care and are activists to try and change this. And it is not wise for people that maybe live on the north side or in some suburbs to look at and reframe the way you think about it. Right. And I think it's also important to point out that while there is still a vast majority of these spots that are empty still, there are a lot of great projects that have happened, that will happen, that will continue to happen. And while we aren't, you know, biting off the whole, you know, thing here, you know, it's it is one it's one chew at a time. Why am I trying to make this a food analogy? I don't know. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to make this a project that's looking all of the city is that, and, and then following up, is that we can see what's happening differently in different parts of the city. And we can see through that act of comparison, we can start to visualize the, you know, the the, the way that these structural inequities are playing out. Uh, I think it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, that's just one building, that's just one building, that's just one building, that's just one building, right? But when you start to see a hundred buildings and more or less the same story is what's happening over and over again, it's clear we're talking about something that's structural. It's not something that's individual. Professor, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. That'll do it for this week's episode. We'll drop another pod on you next week.